This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. We had 50 people make over a million dollars a year. That's crazy. And we had two people... Yeah make over $10 million that year. Quarterback money. That's crazy. <laughs> yeah, but there's only one guy who made hundreds of millions from yeah. courses, and it's you. <laughs> what is up, everybody? This is Michael Sakand. I'm joined by my amazing co-founder and co-host, Simran Sandhu. And another person. Today, we have Ankur Nagpal, founder of Teachable, which sold for hundreds of millions of dollars. He's joined us here at Morning Brew's headquarters at our awesome studios, and we're excited to get to know you, man. I'm stoked. Let's do this. Yeah, let's do it. So how old were you when you sold your company for that ridiculously filthy amount of 200 I had million? Just, just turned 31. I started the company when okay. I was 24, ran it for seven years. Uh, my birthday was in February. I sold it in March, right when we went into lockdown. And yeah, it was a good, good time. That's a, like a good... Time to, I guess, get into lockdown. You're like, wow, I've got everything together. It was right? so anticlimactic because I was like, <laughs> all this, like, okay, this is the biggest champagne problem in the world, right? But all this money hits your bank account. And I'm like, cool, what do I do now? Well, you can't leave the house. You're like, <laughs> yeah. literally, like, yeah. stuck at home and couldn't do anything. But yeah, it was were, were you Were you the only founder of that? Like, you didn't, you were like the only founder of the company? Uh, I was the only major founder. <clears throat> I had a co-founder early on. He left after a year. So okay. yeah, I owned, wow, I owned about half the company at Exit. That's crazy. Yeah. So when you when you exit for hundreds of millions like that, you can just see that shit in your bank account. Yeah, it just you just get a giant uh, wire transfer. <laughs> also, no taxes are withheld, right? So if you if you get a salary, taxes are withheld. Here, you get the entire amount, and then you pay taxes. So that's nice because then you can just see that massive amount before Uncle Sam takes his cut. Correct. But then it's probably even. <clears throat> more just sad when you have to steal that money yeah. go it hurts your brain but yeah. also remember this time the markets were freaking out like like you would you got all this money but the stock market fell like the day we announced the deal was the biggest single stock market crash in history so wow. markets were freaking out there was a ton of uncertainty no one knew what was happening but yeah it was it was a good time so you would say you got like pretty lucky on timing I can argue either side of it, right? Like at the end of the day, because our business doubled when we went into lockdown. So we were making about $25 million a year when we sold the company. Two months after we sold the company, we were making $50 million a year because um, online education wow. just doubled. But at the same time, like overall, I'm so grateful. I think the worst thing is when people are like, life works out for them and they're like kind of cranky assholes or like, oh, 
could have gone so much better. In general, I'm just right. grateful. Right. But Teachable wasn't your first business, right? Like you've been doing businesses since you were a kid and in college yep. too. Yep. Teachable was my first adult business. Like okay. I, when I was in college, uh, you guys were probably children back then. Uh, back in 2007, Facebook released yeah, the, I was a kid. Uh, Facebook, <laughs> Facebook platform where you could have these silly little Facebook apps like, you know, answer personality quizzes uh, and get your results or send your friends a gift or whatever. And that shit blew up when I was in college. So I did that, but that wasn't a grown-up business since it was just me and, you know, we're printing a bunch of cash, but yeah. we didn't have investors. We weren't, like, building any enterprise value. So Teachable was the first adult business, but, yeah, I was always doing stuff. No, it's cool. So, okay, so you started Teachable in, in 2013. Like, you were really early to courses. Like, I don't remember a lot of people slinging courses back. Like, yep. now it's obviously in vogue. Yeah. Anybody who, like, runs an e-commerce business actually makes more money from their course than their actual core yeah. business, which yeah. is hilarious. Uh, so I got that start by, I don't know if you know this platform, Udemy at the time. Mm -hmm. So we had a course on Udemy, me and my buddy. And it, first we were just creators and we we're like, oh, we're making like, you know, $2,000 a month. But there was no way of scaling it beyond that since Udemy took a big revenue share. You couldn't buy ads to it since the lifetime value went to other people. So first built it basically for ourselves and then you know, a few months in, we're like, wow, other Udemy creators probably need this. And, you know, only like six or seven months in did we realize, wow, this could be a whole startup. So Udemy was founded by Aaron Bali. Was that correct? Yeah. And Gagan and a couple, yeah, a couple Got of it. people. Aaron has a crazy story. Like he, he's he founded from like Turkey, right? Yeah. He came from Turkey. He built two multi-billion dollar companies. Oh, that's crazy. Because the second one that. was Carbon Health, yeah. which we like obviously yeah, yeah, yeah. blew up during, during COVID. But so, okay. So why were you trying to, you built this for yourself. You were trying to do your own course. You're trying to. Yeah. So again, to set context, I was 23 at the time. Um, I was living in San Francisco, came to New York for a weekend as people do. And I'm like, why am I not living here? Yeah. Uh, moved everything, like moved my entire life to New York and kind of just figuring out what to do. Like I was probably going out more than I should, just like being a 23 year old in New York, wasn't working, but I was trying different business ideas. Um, and met this guy, Conrad, and we're like, oh, we should create a course on Udemy, make a little bit of money on the side. And that's how it sort of, you know, went from there. But it wasn't like this grand idea of like, oh, let's build this venture back startup up front. We're like, let's sling some courses, see how it does, and then build the product for ourselves. Well, this has happened a few times in your journey where you've taken a substantial amount of time off mm -hmm. and just like brainstormed yeah. and and pushed a few different ideas. And, and that was a moment of exploration mm -hmm. for you as well, right? You yep. have eight to 10 different ideas that you played around with. Yep. So how did you like set on this specific idea? And you're like, teachable is the one for me. Honestly, it's the only one that worked. Like it's like, it's like <laughs> I try, you try all these other ideas and you never realize it's not working. Cause I mean, people are nice and people are like, oh, it's a cool yeah. idea. I would use it. But then, you know, weeks pass and you find yourself distracted by a new shiny idea. With Teachable, like we just, every single month was bigger than the last one. And after like six or seven months, we're like, okay, this is a real business. This has never happened that I've worked on anything where for seven straight months, there's been progress and uptake where every month is bigger than the last one. So that's when I was like, okay, let me go to San Francisco, raise venture capital and do this the real way. So like I, yeah. I'm 23, Simi's 24. Like this show is designed for young entrepreneurs. Yep. And like, exactly how old I was at the time. That's what I love, though. Yeah. It's like you were 23 and now you're 34, but, you know, we're able to build a business worth hundreds of millions by the time you were 30. Yeah. Um, so that's really cool that we can go back in time on that. But I guess young people, we're often working on a ton of different projects. We want to be entrepreneurs. We have this idea, an app for this, uh, a course for why. There's so much at play. You know, a lot of entrepreneurs we've talked to is like they just know in their heart when the right business is that they're going to pour their energy into it. 
Um, what would you say about that? And like, how does a young person, how could they know that they're working on the right thing? It's very hard to know in yep. the moment, right? Yeah. So I hear this from other entrepreneurs and I call bullshit on this where they're like, man, like I just knew this business is my life's calling because of like the idea or the problem or whatever. Like, I wish I could say that was true for me, but no, I don't, I didn't care that much about online courses where I'm like, oh, this is like my, you know, life's true purpose or calling. Um, as an entrepreneur, just like you see a business working and then it's like a video game or whatever, right? You want to right. advance to the next level. You want to yeah. grow revenue. And then it just becomes a single-minded focus to make the business bigger every single time. So for me, the, the reality is what drew me to this was like continued progress. And then you start building a team and then it becomes bigger than you. Then, you know, yeah. then, you're, start, then you're starting to play for everyone else in the field. Um, and that's when it gets really fun. That's well, sick. you also had a substantial amount of capital at your disposal for that age, right? Yep. You had sold a few. Correct. Exactly. I'd yeah. made enough money that I could afford to like not have a job for a couple of years. At, at age 23? Uh, at age 21, basically, with the Facebook apps, because we were wow. we were just yeah. making cash. Like, Damn, if we had done the show in 2011, yeah. you would have been like, yeah. <laughs> you've been the guy. You would have yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> been the host of yeah. this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But see, that's interesting. So you had this money and now you're testing out these ideas. Did you ever have like a certain framework or criteria you used, which was like, I'm going to put 10K behind an idea and I'm going to give myself two months or three months and I'm going to see if there's any, any merit to this. Nope. It was pure chaos. It was like complete chaos. There's nothing like sort of tactical about it. Things had gotten kind of dark and dire because it had been a couple of years. Nothing was working. I remember my mom flew to America, like they don't live here, and had the talk. She's like, I think you should work for Facebook, which to me was like the worst <laughs> thing someone could say because you're trying to build a business. And But to my dad's credit, he's like, nah, ignore her. Like, it's fine. Like, Just you do know, your thing. Yeah, do your thing. Like, we worked really hard in like, you know, middle class jobs so that our son could kind of be a founder, be an entrepreneur, you know, yeah. follow his dreams and stuff. But no, for two years, it was kind of stressful by that point since nothing was working. And wait. But you'd, you'd banked several hundred thousand at age 21. Yeah. Why were you doubting yourself at all? I mean, it's just two years of nothing working, right? Like, yeah. I think it's very, it's very, you can kind of lose hope a little bit when you have 10 different ideas and all 10 kind of suck. Yeah. And it was, it was still like not bad. Like I still, you know, stuck with the plan and didn't get a job or whatever. I didn't even seriously contemplate it, but my parents wanted me to, or my mom wanted me to. Do you think the issue was with the ideas or the execution of them? It's just, it's just hard. Like, I don't yeah. think, like, I think it's, I think if you, I think a one in 10 batting average is pretty decent for ideas you try. And I think it's okay for a lot of people listening to abandon their ideas more. I think you, we listen to so much like hustle porn of like, oh, you know, Elon Musk is like sleeping in the office. And I see so many people like chasing shitty ideas for too long when really you should just try more ideas and like yeah. kill more things frequently versus like dramatizing this like idea of like this entrepreneur who never gives up. Yeah. Do you believe in the saying like an entre uh, a business lives and dies by the will of the founder? I think that's generally true in the early days. Eventually, like you build a team around it and that becomes much more important. I think I think people overestimate what a single person can do unless that you're also looking at their ability to hire since mm -hmm. that like like I think all of Teachable, like I owe so much to the, the team and especially the early employees who don't have a founder title, but in a lot of ways are, you know, basically de facto founders. Yeah. So you came up with the idea for Teachable because you were doing a course. 
So it was just one of those 10 ideas, right? Which is like, how do I make money? How do I Correct. A business? I was like hustling. Let me do a course business, right? And it wasn't even that. It started off, we saw these guys on YouTube and I'm like, let me find these YouTubers and put their videos on Udemy and make a little take rate. Then yeah. we're like, oh, we actually don't need these YouTubers. Their content sucks. We'll create our own content. <laughs> yeah. And then we're like, oh, this platform sucks. Let's create a platform. But it's yeah. all organic. So I think, I think it's okay to chase like small, you know, side hustles to make a little bit of money. And then every month, think about what you can do to broaden the scope. Yeah. Well, I mean... Like the reason you're on this show is because like you, like you're not a course guy. Yeah. You built the platform for the course guys. Yeah. There's two types of people. One person takes the low leverage, yeah. easy, low hanging fruit business opportunity. They create a course yeah. and they make money. They create social media content. Woohoo. You know, I'm making money from a course, but then there's the ultimate player. The ultimate yeah. player builds the infrastructure for that, for the that picks group and of shovels, entrepreneurs. The picks and shovels, right? But there's right? so yeah. much, so many fewer of you than yeah. there are creators and course yeah. sellers. There's only so many people in the world that can build the platform. Yep. Everyone else just participates it's in that so platform. much. I mean, it's so much harder to build a platform. It took us about, from the time I was playing around with it to the point we got to a million in annualized revenue was about three years. So many course people make that money in like six months, you know? Yeah. So it's much, much, much harder. But you scrapped your way there and you leveraged your network at Berkeley, right? That's yep. where you went to school. Yep. And a lot of those people ended up being your early investors, right? So when I was in when I was in Berkeley, I was, yeah, 19 years old and I met a bunch of people in Silicon Valley. And it's very easy when you're 19 because people are like, oh, you're so young. Let me introduce you to this person. Yeah. Like, when you're 25, no one really cares. <laughs> uh, but when you're 19, so I met all these like incredible Silicon Valley people when I was very, very young. And when it came time to fundraise, I flew back to New York. I flew back from New York and went straight there and, yeah, raised a lot of money from them. Yeah. At age 19? Age 19 is when I met them. At age 24 is when oh. I actually, like, you know, and at that yeah. point, it's great because yeah. they've known you for four years, five years. Right. There's a, trend, there's a bit of a story. So, yeah, went back to them. Yeah. How did you decide how much money you needed to raise, especially when the idea was evolving so much? I mean, I would take as I like people always say, well, how did you decide who to raise from or how much to raise? I mean, anyone that said yes, I took their money. It was like, <laughs> it was not it, we it was it was hard. Yeah. Like it took two months to get the first person to say yes. And eventually I think we got to a million dollars or so, which cause it sounded like a good number, but took a long time to get the first yes, like two months of like constant, not even rejection people you having a good meeting and then people never replying to you. What's crazy to me though about your story is like how disciplined you were. And what I mean by this is when you sold the company, you guys had raised 12 million yep. and you still had 9 million in the bank. Yep. That's like unheard of that's, for like most insane. of these founders, right? Yeah. They just blow through this cash like this. Yeah. I think it's a different I think it's a different time. I I could also argue that we may have been too conservative because like to me I would get stressed out with a high burn rate, right? Like you can yeah. also like argue the opposite like wow, if you had 9 million in cash could you have better deployed that that money? But no, our business was inherently also very easy since like we're not selling physical products. It's right. all digital products. And the like, distribution comes from the creators themselves. Exactly. So it was right. very efficient from a cash perspective. Yeah. Like some businesses are just like hard. They're like a hardware business. They're so CAC intensive too. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Like especially for D2C. Yep. It's like we're going to burn all of our yeah. easy money on marketing. Yeah. That's just that what, what it yeah. takes. Oh, right. and part of it was also our failing. Like we never could get paid ads to work. So as a result, we never spent much. But like every time we tried it, they just like our funnels were garbage. Like we would spend a hundred thousand dollars to make fifty thousand dollars, and we're like, this is stupid. So we shouldn't do this. So did you get the teachable.com domain name off the bat? How'd you get that? No. So we started the company was called Fedora. Use Fedora.com. Terrible domain like name. The Fedora the hat. The hat. It was yeah. awful. It was awful. <laughs> yeah, it's just uh, trash. Yeah, trash. <laughs> completely trash name. But I was like, I don't want to spend time on a name because it didn't really matter since people were creating courses and it had their branding. But eventually, a year and a half in, we're like, okay, we need to come up with a new name. Started looking at domains. Teachable.com was like 25K, which wasn't bad at all. 
Like, let's do it. Nice. You guys built this flywheel too, right? Like, so you charged the creators and not the actual, like, students. Correct. Correct. Yeah. It was all supply side. All I cared about is the creators paying us money, and then they could keep all the money they made. So how did you think about that? How did you even, like fall into that business model we literally stole shopify's business model there's nothing nothing, <laughs> nothing innovative about it we literally stole shopify's business model and toby from shopify eventually became an investor too because i, I really respect that company but yeah, yeah. but yeah it's it, like we started Casual out flex <laughs> we, we started out by taking a percentage on core sales but then within four months our metrics were all over because core sales would be up and down i'm like let's just charge the creator and yeah then that always became our business model we also stole Shopify's payments revenue business model, where eventually we like did the same thing they did, allowed people to try to process payments, built our own payment processor, made money of that. By the time we sold the company, that was a bigger business than the monthly fees the creators paid. Wow. Let, let's talk platforms and creators because it's yeah. such a hot topic and it has been for the past 10 years, where you have platforms and you have creators that aren't benefiting or being able to monetize off the platform. If you look at uh, this company emerged recently, it's called Kick. And it was founded by Ed Craven and this other yep. guy. They built a, a crypto gambling business mm -hmm. in Australia, yep. stake.com. And now they're using Kick as a marketing funnel for the casino. But they're throwing off hundreds of millions into this. Crazy. They're doing F1 sponsorships. And they just signed XQC recently for, I think, 70 million or 100 million over two years, right? So your platform function and that the creators paid you to be on it, right? Um, how does that translate to these other environments where creators and platforms yep. are... So, so the way I together. think about it is a lot of times people, like I think the platform where you grow is different from the platform where you monetize. And a lot of times people conflate the two and make less money. Like for instance, yes, you can make some money of YouTube ads and it's getting more and more, but that's an audience building tool. We looked at ourselves in the creator stack or whatever you want to call it as a monetization tool. You've already built your audience elsewhere. You convert them on email. We're the place where they literally hit pay and like you deliver the experience. So as a result, we couldn't defend taking a percentage because really a lot of our creators, right? Like we had Seth Godin had a course on our platform and he made a lot of money. He could have literally told people, mail me a check and some percentage of people would have done that. The platform is sort of irrelevant. We were just the place where the payments came at the end, but we're right. purely a monetization platform. Like the creator has done all the work. We're just a technology solution for them to actually like charge the credit card and deliver the experience. I feel like that works, be works better. Like look at all these creators on Substack being mad about the splits. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it just causes controversy. Right? Yeah, exactly. Which is like, we're like, you keep all, they basically kept all the money. Like if you, they were on our medium tier, which is $99 a month, they kept all the money. And then really we're just a part of their tool stack. We're not a place for them to build a distribution. Right. So you believe in, instead of taking a small percentage of a lot of GMV, take like a flat, nice, solid $99 subscription from a smaller group of individuals is a better business model? I think they're both great business models. I think companies mess up by doing both. So I think like Shopify is an incredible business. Amazon is an incredible business. You, doing both is really hard. Yeah. So we picked, we picked the word of the supply side platform. We tried being a marketplace because that is valuable. We just failed at it. Like it's also a valuable business. It's just completely different. Mm -hmm. But you grew very organically, right? Like it was the teachers would go create these courses and then people would consume this information and then they would want to become teachers as well, right? Like that was kind of that worked, viral. but that did like that also there was a ton of effort we did to get the teachers on the platform. Like there was everything like early days, it was very unscalable. Like I would cold email people. I would like yeah. go to conferences, do all these things. Eventually what worked for us is 
we used creators and we did a bunch of events where we highlighted successful stories. So we do a live online conference and get like 50, 60,000 people to wow. sign up for the live conference. And then we'd sell our platform to teachers there. So we were good at that type of marketing. Like the good thing with, like when a creator is successful, like we could tell that story and they have people in their audience that want to be creators. So that loop started working. 50,000 people at a webinar. That's yeah, crazy. It's crazy. It, it's, it's such a high though. Like you're on a live <laughs> workshop. You're like, all right, yeah. if you're watching me, like type this in chat and you have like 10,000 people type right. at the same time. It's pretty sick. So this space is really saturated now. Oh, it's um, horrible now. It's horrible. It's probably a bloodbath for, for CAC and for fighting for the few creators who can actually drive. And courses are down year over year. For the first time I've ever seen courses like ever because they spiked so much during COVID that yeah. now everyone I know is making less money in courses this year than the year before. So let's go back to that thing we were discussing before we started airing, yeah. which was a lot of these courses, they aren't actually valuable, but they're marketed as being valuable. Yep. It's like, I need to get from point A to B. My course is going to take you to B. Yep. And it, that is what it's sold on. So like, how do we think about courses in general? Like, I don't, I personally have like never really bought a course before. Like, this sounds bad as someone that ran a course platform, but I've never taken a course. I'm like, uh, sound like the, the Pepsi CEO is like super slim. Yeah. Yeah. He's like not, <laughs> not getting high on his own supply. Um, so there was just such a big variance in course creators. There are some courses that like truly changed people's lives. Like, yeah. what's it called? I mean, you've seen Tacky McCormick. He's like, you know, pretty successful as a blogger. Um, he started out by taking David Perrell's like rite of passage course, $2,000 writing course. You look at the alumni on that course, they've done gone on to do great things. And then there's some people that I'm not going to name, but they're just grifters. Like they're just grifters. selling trash information overly marketed. Selling garbage to garbage. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So there's just a big variance, but there are a lot of like, there's a lot of really good legitimate courses and yeah. creators, but yeah, there's a lot of trash. Well, Ali Abdal is a good example, right? Yeah. That guy is one of the kind of like, he's like the Mr. Beast of courses, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, Tiago Forte is someone else who's been like just Oh, the second it. brain. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yep. I've liked, I like the concept behind that. Yeah, and these are all like just phenomenal course creators who like put everything into it and their students like it's truly uh, transformed their lives. But then we have other people who like, again, I'm not going to name, but like they're selling, you know, courses for two, three thousand dollars promising results. And, you know, their students aren't that happy. The thing is to build a successful business over the long term, you have to have happy students. So we see like a lot of people will have one big launch. But unless your launches are consistently getting bigger and bigger, and the yeah. only way that happens is if people who take the course have a great outcome. Yeah. How do you create a happy student, though? Like, like I went to Michigan, and I'm happy. Like, yeah. I went to a top business school. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. woohoo! Yeah. But I, I don't really remember anything I learned. I think, the, I think if you somehow change someone's lives, they never shut up talking about it. So even if you can do that to a small percentage of people... Yeah. You get these super fans or whatever. Right. Um, you get that organic marketing flywheel where it's like they're just going to correct keep pushing. Correct. It's, it is hard though, right? Because like courses in general, so many people buy courses and never take them. They don't look at them. Like it's yeah. crazy, especially if a course yeah. is cheap. It's just an astounding number of people will buy a course and never watch a single thing. Well, it goes back to like a theory I have on business and that the world is run on forgotten shit. Yeah. Subscriptions, things you bought you never use more than once. Yeah. All this stuff. Big debate we had is even at Teachable, about a quarter of our customers or a third of our customers never made a single sale. Yeah. But we still sent them their billing email every single month. Like we debated this. We're like, you know, if we don't send them the email, churn will be lower. But we still sent them an email every single time we charge their card. Because do you think there was like, I was like, oh, I don't want to cancel. Like I still have this dream that I could sell. Correct. Correct. And we also tested wow. people that are paying for it 
are more likely to do anything. We had a free tier. If you're on our free tier, you're never going to do anything. So even the pain of seeing that amount made people more likely to do it. So you guys probably implemented a ton of scrappy growth hacks. Like, curious to yeah. hear just to some of them or ones that come I think the one that worked the best yeah. is um, you could enter your, your Udemy email and password, and it just pulled all your content in in, like, four seconds really so you use the api from another there was company. no api so we basically had kind of reverse engineered the api they were using and like we just logged in as you and downloaded all your shit with the person's permission because their right. content uploaded it all and yeah that was that was crazy for the first year because you could we you to me people could onboard in like minutes when crazy. did you realize that you you went so you started by there's this market and you're gonna steal market share and it's gonna the pie is gonna remain the same when did you realize that this is a growing pie and me and Udemy can both be very successful? Probably year two when we realized that like we had an onboarding survey where people were coming from and we realized Udemy people were like less than 5% of our audience. And our biggest competition at the time before the market started growing was shitty WordPress plugins. I never realized how big the world was of people like with these garbage WordPress sites um, and that became a bigger market. And then eventually... Three years in, people started talking about the creator economy. That was not a thing. No one talked about that. Yeah. But simultaneously, what was happening is Instagram, YouTube, all these platforms were growing. We didn't even realize that was our business. But, you know, at some point, it became clear that this, this cool thing was happening. Mm -hmm. Any kind of maybe less apparent advantages of being at the forefront of an emerging trend? Uh, there, I mean, there's just a ton of stuff like we got to see by being so early on, right? Like I think the whole creator economy developed around us and it also developed internationally at the same time. Like we never realized, for instance, that we, we never intended to be an international platform. We looked at our metrics and we had people from all over. Any place you could pay with credit cards became big for us. And the company we sold to Hotmart mm. in Brazil for them, the creator economy is bigger than it is in the U.S. So really, yeah, it's crazy. Like, it's I, just, are they doing the whole social shopping live stream thing like they are in China out there? They like Brazil has a little bit of it, but I think all of the social shopping shit has kind of died down a little, at least really? from what I've heard. Yeah, mm -hmm. but, but I remember when they told us about this company, Hotmart in Brazil. They told us the amount of money this company was making, and I just didn't believe it because I'm like, oh, the Brazilian economy is like smaller than the U.S. economy. There's no way a company's making, you know, X dollars or whatever. But yeah, it's what? crazy. What was, what was the split in terms of, like, say, big name creators on the platform mm -hmm. and the revenue they generated versus, say, like, micro niche creators who also had very passionate audience with a lot of depth there? So, you know how people say there's an 80-20 rule? Ours was more 85-15. 85% of revenue came from 15% of creators. But by the end, it was like pretty crazy like i think the last year that i was fully involved we had 50 people make over a million dollars a year that's crazy. and we had two people yeah. make over 10 million dollars that year 10 million dollars from courses that's so you guys are just printing millionaires over there yeah yeah, yeah. uh the, the 10 millionaires is what blew my mind like we had someone make 20 million dollars cumulatively in the platform that's like quarterback money right, that's crazy. <laughs> yeah but there's only one guy who made hundreds of millions from yeah. courses and it's you yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, i would argue all of our competitors oh, 10 million? that's cute yeah, yeah, I, would, I, would, <laughs> I would argue i mean other other competitors as far as like basically there were well, three kajabi I just yeah, saw kajabi, today yeah from kajabi yeah said there's five million dollars made per day on kajabi yeah they which I which I would believe. I mean, we again by the time when I was leave when I was around, we were two million, two and a half million dollars a day quite often. So okay, let's let's talk about the evolution of the competing platform. So Udemy's first. Yep. 
EDX, e- edX, yeah, edX, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, edX, Udemy, probably around the same yep, time. They had Coursera, um, Udacity. They're all, Udacity. they're all, mar- they're all marketplaces. Skillshare. How is there room for all these massive brands? And most in of the them team? died. Like, is the reality of it? Like, the marketplaces didn't do that well. In our immediate space, there was Kajabi, this company Thinkific, who I feel bad for because they went public at the worst possible time, and now they're just like. They're actually a decent enough company, but the public market had just destroyed Wait, them. Was Kajabi around when you started? Kajabi had been around like 10 years before we started. They've wow. been around ever. Yeah. What? Yeah, they've been around so, since like the late 2000, like 2009 or something. Yeah. So you probably knew you were early to an extent, but there were also three massive. I didn't know of Kajabi till like year two or three. Like, you know, like I didn't even know <laughs> if it existed, to be honest. But there were massive players in the market you were aware of. What gave you the gumption? I'm like 23. Like, why, why would I be able to go after this? Ignorance. Market? I had no idea they existed. Like, you didn't know. Udemy existed? Uh, Udemy was a marketplace, so that was different, right? So we were like, we could argue that they're the Amazon, we're the Shopify. So that was fine. Oh, Kajabi was oh. the direct parallel. I had no idea they existed because Kajabi's entire audience was sketchy internet marketers, yeah. which like we never got to for a while. It's so. almost better like not to find out about your competitor because if you haven't heard of it, they're probably not very good. Yeah. In general, that's why, I, especially for people listening, I think being young is awesome because like, kind of just don't know the shit you don't know. Right. And very often it's like, it's like a tool because I think when you get older, you're like, you just like know more. So therefore, you know all the reasons you fail, you know, all the reasons to not try shit. But like when you're young, you kind of don't give a shit. You just like do stuff. Who do you very... lean on then for like advice and learning, especially like you don't know what you don't know? So it's really helpful to raise money from other founders. So like the first investor we had was a guy named Matt Brezina. He was yeah. in the first Y Combinator class. He was like super helpful. Uh, we raised like Naval was one of our big investors, founder of Angelus. So like all of these like founders were great because they were no bullshit. Like you ask them for advice or whatever. Most of the time they didn't even have tangible advice, but... I'd be like, yo, this happened, it's really messed up. And they'd be like, yeah, it's always messed up. And that conversation made me feel better. It's shit like that, <laughs> right. but like from a psychology perspective was super helpful. How did you filter through what was good advice and what now would feel like bad advice? I think in general, I'm a pretty independent-minded person. So like if anything, I'm bad at taking advice. So I think that sort of uh. helped and served me as a founder where I would you know, get advice. And if it's not what I wanted to listen to, I kind of ignored it. Uh, but I think, yeah, just like I like a lot of people had bad experiences with investors, but I loved our investors because yeah. they one left me alone. Like they were never in my shit unless I wanted anything. And when I did, they were super helpful. No, but ultimately, yeah. they had trust that, you know, you got it. Do this your way and we'll we'll back you no matter what you want to do which is exactly the kind of support I wanted. That's cool. I just think about our own journey and we would get so much conflicting advice. It was like opposite ends of the spectrum. What's interesting is, right, everyone gives you advice based on what benefits them. Correct, exactly. So we we met someone with a lot of money or who had a lot of connections to investors, they'd be like, oh, absolutely, let's get this round. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah. incentives are so important because your incentives as a founder are going to be different from every single person around you. Like all your investors will have different incentives. Your employees will have different incentives and that's fine, but just consider incentives at stake before deciding whose advice to take. Um, And also just never take like tactical advice on like what your business should do from an investor because mm-hmm. most of them have been out of the game so long and they'll just try and pattern match. Like we had some investor being like, oh, I heard like Snapchat's a big channel because one of their other companies is using Snapchat. And it's like not that useful, right? You know your business better than they do. Yeah. How do you think about new industries and ideas that you think young people should be getting into now? Do you have any insights on that as to what you would advise like the 21, 22 year old to, to look at? I mean, like, it sounds very cliched, right? But I think, I think just doing the things that like 
are kind of fun and then finding a way to, to to make a business from that right or or sort of or sort of like that was always my blueprint and like again i was always hustling i was always like oh how can i make a little bit of money here a little bit of money there and then like scaling it from there so i don't know i've I don't like some people. And again, the courses parallel is we'd get people being like, what course is profitable so I can make a course on that or whatever. And I just think that's the wrong way of right. like doing anything. Like I wouldn't go into an industry because other people say it's a good industry to go into versus like just something that you think is kind of fun to mess around with. Yeah. I mean, content and courses are a good way to like get rich. But like if you want to get wealthy, like you have to build something with enterprise value. Yeah, You have to own equity, right? You have to own and equity. A, in but something like valuable. you. Yeah. Right. It's, it's, it's actually an interesting concept. Like there's only, again, like I'll go back to what I said earlier. There's only a few people who can build the infrastructure that's worth mm -hmm. a billion. Even, even, For any industry. even creators are realizing this now, the number of creators they see, like the, the big ones, right? The ones who are not worried about cash who now realize it's all equity. Yeah. They realize like, like, yes, you can do brand deals. You can do this stuff. You can make a million bucks here, a million bucks there. But we, we realized that early on. It's like, we can do agency services and throw off cash. We can do content and get brand deals and we can build something really cool, but it's like, we have to build this for exit yeah. in order to be in our position to do a higher leverage business in the future. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and again, like the tax benefits also, like that's the other thing, the government also, it's a double whammy because the government will tax you so much worse on um, any kind of cash. But as opposed to if you're building equity value, right. you can basically optimize the hell out of it and pay almost no taxes. So it's like a double whammy. Well, that's kind of the genesis for Ocho, right? Yep. I realized I knew like nothing about money or personal finance in America. And it blew my mind the kind of things you can do in the tax code. Like everyone knows it, right? Like rich people don't pay any taxes, blah, blah, blah. But um, I hired lawyers, consultants to figure out how to structure things around our acquisition. Super eye-opening. And I'm like, everyone should know this. Everyone... Every single business owner should be able to take advantage of these things. And that's our goal. How we productize it, we're figuring it out. The first product is a retirement account for self-employed people. Um, but we're going to keep building these like little taxes. Is that a novel product? It, a lot of people have no idea how it works. It's called a solo 401k. It's yeah. your own one-person 401k. And you can defer $66,000 in taxes every year. You can invest it in any asset class you want. And there's just like shitty tech to do it before this. It's crazy, right? The moat that the rich have is obviously capital, but second is like information. It's institutional knowledge. It's like generational wealth, right? Like your parents yeah. like talk to you about this and I didn't know any of this. And um, yeah, our goal is to like democratize all of this information and just make it accessible to people and make the tools really easy for people to do and see what happens. So you sold your company for hundreds of millions. Is there anything you can share in terms of how you structured things to save money on taxes? Yeah, so the biggest thing that like every entrepreneur should like know, the biggest tax rule is called QSBS, Qualified Small Business Stock. And the way it works is if you have a C-Corp and you hold shares for five years, you pay no taxes on $10 million, which is pretty it's wild. amazing. It's kind of messed up, right? The people who don't need these tax breaks are the ones that get these tax breaks. Well, I think Obama, that was Obama uh, in the Great Recession and was like, okay, uh, we need to give small business owners a bone. I think it may have been, I think during his administration, it was a 100% tax break. Before that, it was only a 50% tax break. So it became better during yeah. his thing. To incentivize people to start businesses in America. Correct. But what's crazier is um, you can then also do things, which I was not able to fully set up in time, to multiply the $10 million benefit. So you can, instead of having $10 million tax-free, have 30 or $40 million tax-free. Yeah. No federal taxes. And if you live in 45 states, including New York, no state taxes as well. So it's just, it's just insane. And it's like, that's what I'm saying about- Let's be know. real though. The only time you really need that advice is when you're on the cusp of a massive windfall. 
Uh, I would say the best time there are advantages to doing it before then because um, you ideally want to do it before the company's been marked up too much. So yeah, I tell people makes sense. between a series A and a series B. I know also, yeah, you don't, I know a lot of people who like don't have product market fit and they're optimizing their taxes and I'm like, dude, <laughs> like, you know, like, like bro, yeah. bro's ready. <laughs> yeah. yeah, like, like wishful now, thinking. Yeah, now's not the time. But I, I would say like, like maybe right before a series B or something. Like I would not put it off too late, but yeah. yeah. But That's yeah. where you're at. You target people between series A and series B. No, so right now our product is is for all types of business owners. Like right now, our biggest market, frankly, is people who are spinning off a few hundred k in cash of, in business income, and they're paying a lot in taxes. Like there's with business income, there's yeah. just so many things you can well, do. Well, the people yeah. who get penalized the most in America are those who W2 make between a hundred k and a million dollars a year. Yeah, but W two specifically, like if you make a ton of money working at Facebook, that's the worst type of income to have. If like you have a one person business, you can optimize a lot of stuff. But high salary is the single worst type of income. Yeah, six hundred to seven hundred, eight hundred k. You think yeah. that's amazing? Half is gone. Yeah, I mean Warren Buffett said he pays. Uh, he's always had a lower tax rate than his secretary. Just kind of wild. <laughs> so yeah. filthy. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. This uh, country's fucked. Yeah. yeah, this country's super messed up. But so our goal is let's democratize this information and see. Like, I can't change the tax code, but we can just exploit like all of these loopholes. Show everyone what they can do. Yeah, and it's up to them. What we they had can a do. fucked legal situation, dude. We were like a LLC. I was a sole proprietor. Everyone, everyone messes that. Then yeah. it was a C corp, and then we had to. There's these these taxes yeah. and these accountants sucked. Yep, it's like exactly. I feel like there's this trend in business right now, when wealthy elites are trying to democratize the things that make elites wealthy. Mm -hmm. And it's like, is that even possible? Yeah, I mean, I think I think keeping this information less siloed in itself is a very good thing. Like, I think it's very hard for anyone to change the tax code. Like, and it's not another thing. Tax code adds 150,000 words a year or something bizarre. Like, there's not a single person in the world that knows the tax code. And a lot of things you ask lawyers, like, I thought the tax code is very clear. You ask lawyers what the right answer is, they're like, oh, it's up subject to interpretation. So very often, people will read this, they'll interpret it a certain way, they'll wait till the IRS challenges them, then goes to court, and then whatever happens in court is a precedent. The whole system is just so messed up. Yeah, you just have to get rich enough to surround yourself with those people. Or, I mean, dude, or use your platform. I th yeah, I, I, think it can, I think a lot of this can be democratized, especially can it, because. Can it really be served up programmatically in a platform to tell you what the hell your situation is? I think, I think that you can get to like 80% of it. I think like there's always going to be a room for specialized lawyers and consultants. Yeah. But even that, like, I used to think lawyers and consultants know everything. No, they can just tell you, like, oh, you can take this move and it has this level of risk and it's up to you. So, who would be like the ideal business size that would use your platform because i my my hunch is that like if you're doing hundreds of millions or billions you probably have your own right own now the perfect sweet spot i would say is business owners with like two hundred thousand in profit like i think that's the amount profit. where we can just optimize that's so healthy on. yeah that, that's like a huge target market yep. how, do you, how do you charge like, them uh so we have multiple we have a self-serve just for a retirement product that's like 300 bucks a year all the way to like our premium consulting service which is a thousand bucks a month and everything in between and you're doing zero marketing correct yeah, or zero like, paid. Zero, zero paid. Zero paid. Zero paid. Yeah. I, yeah. Fintech, like paid money for fintech or paid marketing for fintech yeah. is completely messed up. Like when the whole FTX blow up shit happened, but like all all the CACs were just out of whack. And we're like, we're not going to play this game. We're not going to pay anyone a dollar until we get the core business working well. And look, we're 11 months in. Early signs are good, yeah. but we're still not there. The CACs are freaking hard in fintech yeah it's like exactly. it's, it's like no one's making like, money it's like a like, little bit of the robin hood are very like six or seven hundred dollars in account it was just, just crazy yeah people are so protective over their cash they don't want to move it into another platform exactly yeah so that's again so as i said i'm fine again like 
you have like I'm more patient this time. Like if it takes us two years to get a product dope enough to like truly market, that's fine. I'm what's, okay. What's the scope of services? Is it the special 401k? I think that's great. What else is it like? We have a we pair you with a financial planner that'll look at your business and your personal stuff and like just give you like optimizations. Like oh, if you have ten thousand dollars in income a month. You want to give X to your 401k, Y to your HSC. Like this is how you stack your accounts because yeah. that's beneficial for you. What wow. is the ceiling for this business? Like as in, like what could this business become? Or yeah, like what's the North Star the, for you? Oh, guys? the long term? I it's the, company, the company that inspires me the most in this space is Charles Schwab. Like Charles Schwab, they're kind of, I mean, you don't think of them as a startup, but compared to all the other banks, they're like the young kid. Schwab, like, Schwab only came out in 1975. All the other banks are like 200 years old. And what they did is they treated their customers like intelligent people. Like they stopped, prior to Schwab, people were like Wolf of Wall Street calling calling clients, selling shitty products. Schwab yeah. is like, our customers are smart. We're gonna just build a brokerage that like puts their best interests first. And they kind of blew up the game. They're like $150 billion brokerage right now. And yeah. that's our They were game. the first to slash uh, bro broker fees. Yeah, yeah. Correct. Yeah. correct. They're the first Something ones Something about Charles Schwab, it's like, that's rich, rich. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, he's, yeah, I mean, uh, I mean, he's still around. Charles yeah, Schwab. he's still really? doing interviews yeah. on like yeah. CNBC all what? the time. He invested yeah. in a fintech company too. Like one of our companies are like, yeah, we raised money from 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 Chuck, and I'm like, who's Chuck? Chuck I, Schwab. So no, now you can pull a, a Toby thing yeah. with Shopify. Yeah. Now you need yeah. to get him as an investor yeah. 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 for Ocho. The problem with having an Indian name is I could never name the company after. <laughs> it's not gonna, it's not gonna have the same the same type name. Yeah, Nagpal yeah. Industries. Yeah, yeah, it's not gonna, <laughs> all the way to the top. Yeah. Uh, I think what's really interesting about you is the tie-in between your last business and this new business. Again, you're charging a nice, solid subscription fee to the person who's running an independent business. Yeah. Um, you're, you're, get, you're supplying infrastructure and a platform for independent entrepreneurs just like you did before. Correct. And part of that is also like I hate the financial advisor space. Like they have AUM fees, like Astronaut Management fees, typically 1% or more. People don't realize how toxic they are because like people don't run the math, but the average financial advisor is like like a grifter. Like they're like yeah. charging one percent plus to like index into the stock market. And if you run the math like over twenty or thirty years, like they're making they're like just destroying your returns. So no AUM fee was a big part of our pitch. Well, I also believe that in yeah. returns. I also believe that like who hits us up for to be our financial advisors or like our previous classmates? And I'm yeah. like, dude, I was <laughs> yeah. in class with yeah, you. Like, I would not trust yeah. you with yeah. my money. Like, bro, you weren't even awake. <laughs> yeah. 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 That was econ, bro. Yeah. Yeah. No, one of the kids in my class is like a degenerate gambler. And yeah. then like, he's like, like a financial Yeah, like, He's like, Simmy, let me can't manage your money. I was yeah. like, dude, like, yeah. you're, the last <laughs> you're the last person. Yeah. yeah. And like it goes all the way to the top, right? Like you have like like JP Morgan, Goldman Sachs, all of them too. Like they have these like massive private wealth businesses like built for a different time. And yeah. just like insane fees, they're all hidden. There's no transparency in this industry. It's pretty messed up. Okay, so what do the elites do once the common man has cracked their code? Uh, what do you mean? They create new rules, they yeah, create yeah. new procedures. <laughs> yeah, uh, I, again, I, I do think the general trend though is, is it has gotten a lot better. Like think about whatever you may say about Robinhood, they did change the game, right? Prior to that, like even buying shares in something was like this like really expensive transaction. Now that that's killed all over. So I do think things can converge in a better direction. So question for you, what are some of like the key insights from the last business that you now transferred over here? So doing a lot of things differently, but I like my deep inner fear is we're just gonna make different mistakes this time. So I don't think this is gonna be like some kind of utopia, but, but yeah, a lot of stuff. I mean, uh, 
we're going a lot slower in marketing. Last time, I think what we did is we marketed a product with okay product market fit, and that hurt us as we grew. Like we were just like growth, growth, growth. Now we're like, you know what? We'll we'll go slower. We're okay having fewer customers for longer. That's one. Two, I'm hiring people kind of differently. Like the last time I indexed a lot on like people with like nice sounding resumes who worked at like impressive sounding companies. And then I realized they don't know anything more than, because uh, it's very often when you're at a good company that disguises not doing shit. Like if you're at a company that's inherently very, very good and growing, like like if you run marketing at Facebook, like, I mean, you know, Facebook. You're not doing right? Yeah, right. exactly. Yeah. Um, so this time, yeah, like this time I'm indexing on people that really want to work at a startup. I'm also like, even the soft stuff, like this time I'm really indexing on people I want to like hang out with every day because yeah. the reality is like, that's what really ends up happening. Um, but yeah, fighting to keep the company as small as possible, not marketing, doing a bunch of stuff different. And it's stuff. probably growing pretty organically with word of mouth. It is growing organically. If you know, you know. It's like, yeah, yeah, it's growing it's like organically, but like I would Ocho. still say we don't have product market fit. It's not growing organically at the rate I would want it to grow before I'm like, okay, fine, this is like working and let's turn up the dial. Yeah. So what are marketing channels you're actually bullish on for, for a business like this? So I think, um, connecting with i think again i think just creators like whether it's having a voice ourselves like yeah. you know speaking up like i i like twitter has been a big channel for us so far and just like sharing like sharing a lot of this content is inherently quite shareable right you teach someone how to like yeah. like do things with a tax code that is inherently quite shareable so doing a lot of that up front eventually what the thing we're measuring a lot is what's our organic uptake like how many people are having a good enough experience to get their friends to do it and we're we're seeing a good number but we want to see more yeah exactly yeah i mean i feel like content marketing too would be big for you which is like just education yeah like an exactly. education media brand yep exactly so sucking business owners in yeah you know how many people in america are making between 200 and a million dollars a year with their, with their small the, business the population we have as many millionaires here as the entire population of canada which is just like wild crazy that is crazy yeah you know what's kind of an interesting thing i heard you say on um a different interview which was when you were building out the Facebook apps, the apps that pertain to actual education did not do well. It was oh, yeah. the gimmicky app. Oh, Facebook apps. Yeah, you'd have like, I don't know, some something with value and no one cared. And then you'd have a quiz. How good a lover are you? Answer five questions. Yeah. Are you? And that shit went viral. So it was stuff like that. But... So that was the moneymaker back then. But then you proceeded to go build two education-based yeah. businesses, yeah. which is yeah. so funny to me. But it's it's like... I mean, Wait, you Facebook... did a clickbait company? Yeah. <laughs> Facebook, the Facebook apps. Show. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think it's a great place yeah. to cut your teeth because you learn marketing. You learn... Yeah. like. I've still never had as much traffic as I did when I was 21 years old, where we had a few days where we had more traffic than the New York Times and LinkedIn and all yeah. of that, just with these, like... That, that's why I think what me and Simi did is such a good starting point. Like, we just figured out yeah. how to get, like, a billion eyeballs on something. Yeah, but but then at least what I felt, which maybe you felt, I'm like, dude, I don't want to do this my entire life. I don't want to yeah. be, like, 40 years old and, like, yeah. peddling how good a kisser are you quizzes. Like, yeah. it's just, like, not not, not what I want to do. eat that shit up. Yeah, they still do. Quizzes are eternal. It's crazy. Like, yeah. you know... I mean, I love the business category like building a business media company doing like fun stories in the space and making it a bigger growing the the tam for the kind of content with short form but still like romance and true crime and like all this shit is way bigger yeah uh we had i think dr phil's personality quiz that like blew up and just like the right. stuff that it was just crazy that's awesome when you can find yeah. a attention arbitrage on a, an emerging yep. platform yep good Absolutely. great yeah. place for a young entrepreneur to be yeah attention arbitrage i also want to talk about the journey evolution from being a CEO of a big company to then stepping down. And this is something you just talked about as well, is like if if the company evolves and you need to, to move on, that is something you're open to do, which is like very humble of you. But 
what is that what is that like like when do you know okay i'm not actually a good fit for the next step or next level for this business so is there something that like comes to mind i think that's the other thing that's changed a lot like with age is like i feel like i have less ego attached like initially there's so much ego attached where i'm like i'm not gonna let someone else be the ceo of my company yeah but then you realize like i don't even like being the ceo right like if you don't like being it why well, have ego attached to it? And yeah. that's sort of what I felt towards the end is like, I'm not enjoying this. I don't think I'm particularly, I think I'm decent at it. I don't think I'm the best at it. There's better CEOs. I'd back myself as a founder any day, but. I think there's a big difference between an early stage CEO and a late stage CEO. Yeah. 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 So yeah, from a self-awareness perspective, I think if I get to the same point this time, I'll just bounce and, you know, help out in other ways, but not necessarily be the day-to-day CEO. And then what are those levels like? Like in terms of, where you felt the most confident in your abilities? Was it zero to one million? Was it one to five? I five define it more by number, by team size. Cause a lot of what I disliked was like processes and communication. And that's more a factor of how big the team is than revenue. So for me, I think up until the 50-ish employee size, shit was fun. It was yeah. like a blast. It felt like, wow, I can't believe I'm get paid to like do this every single day. But when 50 to 200, it just kept getting like incrementally worse. Um, and what I think, specifically changes at 51? And I know we're using again, that as yeah, an arbitrary. Yeah, I think, I think that I just felt like I had to start spending time convincing people to do the thing that had to be done. And all your time is spent in communication versus doing yeah. shit. Yeah. So, yeah. It's a lot harder to tell people what to do than do shit. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And that's when I realized, like, I would never get into politics because the idea of spending <laughs> so long just telling people to do the same thing over and over and over that you obviously know is the thing to be done. Yeah. It's just so frustrating. Well, I mean, you're making a bigger political impact doing Ocho than you would ever being a politician. Yeah, I would, I would hope so. Um, yeah. Like, you can't go up on stage and explain QSPS so many times. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, at like larger companies, I just felt like, yeah, we're like in, when internal communication became such a big focus and priority versus like growing revenue or adding customers or yeah. building a better product, it's just less fun. There's tons of pros of being a successful, having a successful exit, right? And now starting a company for the second time, way easier to recruit, way easier to raise funding. Yep. Um, you also can carry in some philosophies or tactics yep. that worked in the past. What are the challenges that like people discount or don't really factor in? So the biggest challenge is the first time everyone kind of expects you to fail. Now I'm like, oh, damn, it'd be kind of embarrassing to fail, right? Because you have this, like, like cachet. It's like, oh, you've, like, done this. You know this. Um, so I feel like my fear of failure or, like, desire to not fail is far greater this time. Yeah. Um, also, you get a lot of people. Before. Yeah, you also get a lot of people bullshitting you, right? Because, like, people kind of want to say nice shit to you now that it's sometimes hard to discern what's real or not. Like, people are going to be so much nicer. Prospective customers, like, instead of telling you your product sucks, they'll, like, be polite because they kind of want to keep you in good terms. Forget who said this, but someone said, like, the trick to being a second-time founder is, like, leveraging your own hype without actually believing it. And I think that, that kind of sum, sums it up well. Because if you believe it, you put yourself on, like, the cliff to fall yeah you, you can just and, delude and, like, yourself lose you your can belief. delude yourself right because people are going to like always be polite you can delude yourself that everything is fucking amazing all the time <laughs> and um yeah you got to like just like kind of have a stronger bullshit radar yeah because people are gonna well. yeah well this was an amazing conversation i wasn't sure quite what to expect yeah. Sami had 
had found you on on Twitter. I don't know how hard you go on personal brand and content if you're you're that big on social. I, I on on Twitter I do. Twitter but, you're probably yeah. pretty. He's big. like an up and coming IG influencer. Yeah, like, no, oh, I did, now I, he's doing I like the, the, the promotion stuff. I did, I did the IG <laughs> shit. It never it never quite worked. I'm like this this doesn't feel authentic. So I've like scaled that back. But yeah. you're like I can't have done a course businesses yeah. without like showing like, <laughs> yeah. business advice yeah. on and Instagram. Also, like at least what I found is like I said yes to this because like I feel like doing this shit in person. Is so much better, so like, he, yeah. than like doing I don't know the Zoom version of this. You're program. you're a really good interviewee as well. Like you also know when the host wants to ask you a question or talk, and you also have some good standalone banger. Like I've quotes. been on, well, I've been on your side too. Right? I've interviewed people trying to like guide the conversation in a certain way yeah. or whatever. So yeah, I know. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, everybody. Please leave a like if you're watching on YouTube, a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And tune into our future podcast every single Wednesday. We're going to keep the heat up. Thank where, you so much. Wait, where can everyone follow oh, Encore yeah. and how can they learn more about Ocha? Yeah, absolutely. Ocha.com, O C H O.com. Uh, my full name on Twitter, Encore Nagpal, or Encore A N K U R N A on Instagram. All right. Cool. Thank you so much, man. Great. Well, thank you. Great combo. All right. Thank you. Thanks. Stay frosty. Stay frosty, everybody. <laughs>